Welcome to this Ubula audio presentation of P.G. Wodehouse's Jeeves and the Tie That Binds, Volume 6, Chapter 14. The shortest way to the front of the house was across the lawn, but I didn't take it. Instead, I made for the back door. It was imperative, I felt, that I should see Jeeves without delay and tell him of the passions he had unchained and warn him to keep out of Ginger's way until the hot blood had had time to cool. I hadn't at all liked the sound of the latter's we'll see about that, nor the clashing of those gnashed teeth. I didn't, of course, suppose that, however much on the boil, he would inflict personal violence on Jeeves. Sock him, if you prefer the expression. But he would certainly say things to him which would wound his feelings and cause their relations so pleasant up to now to deteriorate, and naturally I didn't want that to happen. Jeeves was in a deck chair outside the back door, reading Spinoza, with the cat Augustus on his lap. I'd given him the Spinoza at Christmas, and he was constantly immersed in it. I hadn't dipped into it myself, but he tells me it is good ripe stuff, well worth perusal. He would have risen at my approach, but I begged him to remain seated, for I knew that Augustus, like L.P. Runcal, resented being woken suddenly and one always wants to consider a cat's feelings. Jeeves, I said, a somewhat peculiar situation has popped up out of a trap, and I would be happy to have your comments on it. I'm sorry to butt in when you are absorbed in your Spinoza and have probably just got to the part where the second corpse is discovered, but what I have to say is of great pith and moment, so listen attentively. Very good, sir. The facts are these, I said without further preamble, or whatever they call it. I embarked on the narrative. Such, I concluded some minutes later, is the position of all affairs, and I think you will agree that the problem confronting us presents certain points of interest. Undeniably, sir. Somehow Ginger has got to lose the election. Precisely, sir. But how? It is difficult to say on the spur of the moment, sir. The tide of popular opinion appears to be swaying in Mr. Winship's direction. Lord Sidcup's eloquence is having a marked effect on the electorate and may well prove the deciding factor. Mr. Seppings, who obliged as an extra waiter at the luncheon, reports that his lordship's address to the members of the Market Snodsbury Chamber of Commerce was sensational in its brilliance. He tells me that, owing entirely to his lordship, the odds to be obtained in the various public houses, which at one time favoured Mrs. McCorkendale at ten to six, have now sunk to even odds. I don't like that, Jeeves. No, sir, it is ominous. Of course, if you were to release the club book... I fear, sir, I cannot do that. No, no, I told Ginger you regarded it as a sacred trust, that nothing can be done except to urge you to get the old brain working. I will certainly do the utmost, sir. No doubt something will eventually emerge... Keep eating lots of fish, and meanwhile stay away from Ginger as much as possible. He's in an ugly mood. I quite understand, sir. Stockish, hard, and full of rage. Shakespeare? Yes, sir, the Merchant of Venice. I left him then, pleased at having got one right for a change, and headed for the drawing-room, hoping for another quiet go at the wrecked stout, which the swirling rush of events had forced me to abandon. I was, however, too late. The old ancestor was on the chaise lounge with it in her grasp, and I knew I had small chance of wresting it from her. 
No one who has got his or her hooks on a wreck stout lets go of it lightly. Her presence there surprised me. I suppose she was still brooding over by the hammock and its contents. Hello, I said. Have you finished with her on call? She looked up, and I noted a trace of annoyance in her demeanour. I'd assumed that Nero Wolf had come down from the orchid room and told Archie Goodwin to phone Saul Panzer and Ori What's-His-Name, and things were starting to warm up, in which event she would naturally resent the intrusion of even a loved nephew whom she had often dandled on her knee. Not recently, but when I was a bit younger. Oh, it's you, she said, which it was, of course. No, I have not finished with Roncal. I haven't even begun. He's still asleep. She gave the impression of being not so much in the mood for chit-chat, but one has to say something on these occasions, and I brought up the subject which I felt presented certain points of interest. Have you ever noticed the remarkable resemblance between L.P. Runcal's daily habits and those of the cat Augustus? They seem to spend all their time sleeping. Do you think they've got traumatic symplasia? What on earth is that? I happen to come out in a medical book I was reading. It's a disease that makes you sleep all the time. Has Runkle shown no signs of waking? Yes, he did. Just as he was beginning to stir, Madeline Bassett came along. She said could she speak to me, so I had to let her. It wasn't easy to follow what she was saying because she was sobbing all the time, but I got the last of it. It was all about the rift with Spode. I told you they'd had a tiff. It turns out to be more serious than that. You remember me telling you he couldn't be a member of Parliament because he was a peer? Well, he wants to give up his title, so he will be eligible. Can a fellow give a title up? I thought he was stuck with it. He couldn't at one time, at least only by being guilty of treason. But they've changed the rules, and apparently it's quite the posh thing to do nowadays. Is that silly? That's the view that Madeline takes. Did she say what put the idea into Spode's head? No, but I can see what did. He has made such a smash hit with his speeches down here that he's saying to himself, Why am I sweating like this on behalf of someone else? Why not go into business for myself? Who was it who said someone was intoxicated with the exuberance of his own verbosity? I don't know. Jeeves Wood. It was Bernard Shaw, Mark Twain, or Jack Dempsey, or someone. Anyway, that's Spode. He's all buffed up and feels the need for a wider scope. He sees himself holding the House of Commons spellbound. Why can't he hold the House of Lords spellbound? Wouldn't be the same thing. Be like playing in the Muckett Snodsbury tennis tournament instead of electrifying one and all in the centre court at Wimbledon. I can see his point. Well, I can't. Nor can Madeline. She's all worked up about it. I can understand how she frets. No joke for a girl who thinks she's going to be Countess of Sidcup to have the fellow say, April fools, my little chickadee. What you're going to be is Mrs. Spode. If I had been told at Madeline's age that Tom had been made a peer and then I learned he was going to back out of it and I wouldn't be able to call myself Lady Market Snodsbury after all, I'd have kicked like a mule. Titles to a girl are like catnip to a cat. Can't anything be done? The best plan would be for you to go to him and tell him how much we all admire him for being Lord Sidcup. 
and what a pity it would be for him to go back to a ghastly name like Spode. Ah, uh, what's the next best plan? Ah, that one's thinking out. We fell into a thoughtful silence, on my part an uneasy one. I didn't at this juncture fully appreciate the peril that lurked, but anything in the nature of a rift within the loot between Spode and Madeline was always calculated to make me purse the lips to some extent. I was still trying to hit on some plan which would be more to my taste than telling Spode what a pity it would be for him to stop being the Earl of Stidcup and go back to a ghastly name like his, when my reverie was broken by the entry through the French window of the Cat Augustus, for once awake and in full possession of his faculties such as they were. No doubt in a misty, dreamlike sort of way he had seen me when I was talking to Jeeves and had followed me on my departure, feeling after those breakfasts of ours that association with me was pretty well bound to culminate in kippers. A vain hope, of course. The well-dressed man does not go around with kippered herrings in his pocket, but one of the lessons life teaches us is that cats will be cats. As is my unvarying policy when closeted with one of those fauna, I made chirruping noises and bent down to tickle the back of the dumb chum's left ear. But my heart was not in the tickling. The more I mused on the recent conversation, the less I liked what the aged relative had revealed. Telling Augustus that I would be back with him in a moment, I straightened myself and was about to ask her for further details when I discovered she was no longer in my midst. She must suddenly have decided to have another pop at L.P. Runcall, and was presumably even now putting Tuppy's case before him. Well, best of luck to her, of course, and nice to think she had a fine day for it. But I regretted her absence. When your mind is weighed down with matters of great pith and moment, it gives you a sort of sinking feeling to be alone. No doubt the boy who stood on the burning deck, whence all but he had fled, had this experience. However, I wasn't alone for long. Scarcely had Augustus sprung onto my lap and started catching up with his sleep when the door opened and Spode came in. I leapt to my feet, causing Augustus to fall to earth I knew not where, as the fellow said. I was a prey to the liveliest apprehensions. My relations with Spode had been for so long consistently strained I never saw him nowadays without a lurking fear he was going to suck me in the eye. Obviously, I wasn't to be blamed if he and Madeline had been having troubles, but that wouldn't stop him blaming me. It was like the story of the chap who was in prison and a friend calls and asks him why, and the chap tells him, and the friend says, but they can't put you in prison for that, and the chap says, I know they can't, but they have. Spode didn't have to have logical reasons for setting about people he wasn't fond of and it might be that he was like Florence and would work off his grouch on the first available innocent bystander. Putting it in a nutshell, my frame of mind was approximately that of the fellows in the hymn who got such a start when they looked over their shoulders and saw the troops of Midian prowling and prowling around. It was with profound relief, therefore, that I suddenly got onto it that his demeanour was free from hostility. He was looking like someone who had just seen the horse on which he had put all his savings, plus whatever he had been able to lift from his employer's till, beaten by a short head. His face, nothing to write home about at the best of times, was drawn and contorted, but with pain rather than urge to commit mayhem. And while one would always prefer him not to be present, a drawn and contorted with pain spurred was certainly the next best thing. My greeting in consequence had the real ring of cordiality in it, Oh, hello, Spode. Hello. There you are. Splendid, hm? Could I have a word with you, Worcester? 
Of course, of course, have several. He didn't speak for a minute or so, filling in the time by subjecting me to close scrutiny. Then he gave a sigh and shook his head. I can't understand it, he said. What can't you understand, spurred old man, or, or rather, Lord Sidcap, old man? I asked in a kind voice, for I was only too willing to help this new and improved Spode solve any little problem that was puzzling him. How Madeline can contemplate marrying a man like you? She has broken our engagement and says that what she's going to do. She was quite definite about it. All is over, she said. Here is your ring, she said. I shall marry Bertie Wooster and make him happy, she said. You can't want it plainer than that. I stiffened from head to F, even with conditions what they were in this disturbed post-war world. I hadn't been expected to be turned into a pillar of salt again for some considerable time, but this had done it. I don't know how many of my public have ever been slapped between the eyes with a wet fish, but those who have will appreciate my emotions as the seventh Earl of Sidcup delivered this devastating bulletin. Everything started to go all wobbly, and through what is known as a murky mist, I seemed to be watching a quivering at the edges Seventh Earl performing the sort of gyrations travelled friends have told me the nail dancers do in Cairo. I was stunned. It seemed to me incredible that Madeline Bassett should have blown the whistle on their engagement. Then I remembered that at the time when she had plighted her troth, Spode was dangling a countess's coronet before her eyes. And the thing became more understandable. I mean, just take away the coronet, and what have you got? Just spode. Not good enough, a girl would naturally feel. He, meanwhile, was going on to explain why he found it so bizarre that Madeline should be contemplating marrying me. And almost immediately I saw that I had been mistaken in supposing he wasn't hostile. He spoke from between clenched teeth. That always tells the story. As far as I can see, Worcester, you are... Without attraction of any kind? Intelligence? No. Looks? No. Efficiency? No. You can't even steal an umbrella without getting caught. All that can be said for you is that you don't wear a moustache. They tell me you did grow one once, but mercifully you shaved it off. That is to your credit, but it is a small thing to weigh in the balance against all your other defects. When one considers how numerous these are, one can only suppose it is your shady record of stealing anything you can lay your hands on that appeals to Madeline's romantic soul. She's marrying you in the hope of reforming you, and let me tell you, Worcester, that if you disappoint that hope, you will be sorry. She may have rejected me, but I shall always love her, as I have done since she was so high and I shall do my utmost to see her gentle heart is not broken by any sneaking son of a whatnot who looks like a chorus boy in a touring review, playing the small towns and cannot see anything of value without pocketing it. You will probably think you are safe from me when you are doing your stretch in Wormwood Scrubs for larceny, but I shall be waiting for you when you come out, and I shall tear you limb from limb, and... He added, for he was on a one-track mind. Dance on the fragments in hobnail boots. He paused, produced his cigarette case, and asked me if I had a match. Thanked me when I gave him one and withdrew. 
He left behind him a Bertram Worcester whom the dullest eye could have spotted as not being at the peak of his form. The prospect of being linked for life to a girl who would come down to breakfast and put her hands over my eyes and say, guess who, had given my morale a sickening wallop, reducing me to the level of one of those wee, slicket, timorous, cowering beasties Jeeves tells me the poet Burns used to write about. It is always my policy in times of crisis to try to look on the bright side, but I make one proviso, viz., that there had to be a bright side to look on, and in the present case there was not even a sniff of one. As I sat there draining the bitter cup, there were noises off stage, and my meditations were interrupted by the return of the old ancestor. Well, when I say return, she came whizzing in but didn't stop, just whizzed through, and I saw, for I am pretty quick at noticing things, that she was upset about something. Reasoning closely, I deduced that her interview with L.P. Rincall must have gone awry, or as I much prefer to put it, agly. And so it proved that she bobbed up again some little time later. Her first observation was that L.P. Rincall was an illegitimate offspring to end all illegitimate offsprings. And I hastened to commiserate with her. I could have done with a bit of commiseration myself, but women and children first is always the Worcester slogan. No luck, I said. None. Wouldn't part, huh? Not a penny. You mentioned that without his cooperation, Tuppy and Angela's wedding bells would not ring, hmm? Of course I did, and he said it was a great mistake for young people to marry before they knew their own minds. You could have pointed out that Tuppy and Angela have been engaged for two years. I did. What did he say to that? He said, not nearly long enough. So what are you going to do? I've done it. Said the old ancestor. I pinched his porringer. Chapter 15 I goggled at her, a hundred percent nonplussed. She had spoken with the exuberance of an aunt, busily engaged in patting herself between the shoulder blades for having done something particularly clever. But I could make nothing of her statement. The habit of speaking in riddles seemed to be growing on her. You, you what? You pinched his what? His porringer! I told you about it the day you got here. Don't you remember that silver thing he came to sell to Tom? She'd refreshed my memory. I recall the conversation to which she referred. I asked her why she was entertaining in her home a waste product like L.P. Rincall, and she had said he had come hoping to sell Uncle Tom a silver something for his collection, and she had got him to stay on in order to soften him up with Anatole's cooking and to put to him, when softened up, a request for cash for Tuppy. When he turned me down just now, it suddenly occurred to me that if I got hold of the thing and told him he wouldn't get it back unless he made a satisfactory settlement, I would have a valuable bargaining point, and we could discuss the matter further at any time that suited him. I was ap- ap- what it is, what is it? Uh, f f forget my own name next. Uh, appalled! That's the word though shock to the core, would be about as good. Nothing much in it, really. I hadn't read any of those etiquette books you see all over the place, but I was prepared to bet that the leaders of society who wrote them would raise an eyebrow or two on carryings on of this description. The chapter on hints to hostesses would be bound to have a couple of paragraphs warning them that it wasn't the thing done to invite people to the home and having got them settled in to pinch their porringers. 
Good lord, I ejaculated. Appalled, or if you prefer, shocked to the core. Now what? The man is under your roof. Did you expect him to be on it? He's eaten your salt. Very imprudent with blood pressure like his. His doctor probably forbids it. You can't do this. I know I can't, but I have, she said, just like the chap in the story, and I saw it would be fruitless or bootless to go on arguing. It rarely is with aunts, if you're their nephew, I mean, because they were at your side all through your formative years, and know what an ass you were then, and can't believe that anything that you may say later is worth listening to. I shouldn't be at all surprised if Jeeves's three aunts don't shut him up when he starts talking, Remembering that at the age of six, the child Jeeves didn't know the difference between the poet Burns and a hole in the ground. Ceasing to expostulate, therefore, if expostulate is the word I want, I went to the bell and pressed it. And when she asked for footnotes, throwing light on why I did this, I told her I proposed to place the matter in the hands of a higher power. I'm ringing for Jeeves. You'll only get Seppings. Seppings will provide Jeeves. And what do you think Jeeves can do? Make you see reason. I doubt it. Well, it's worth a try. Further chit-chat was suspended till Jeeves arrived, and silence fell except for the ancestors snorting from time to time and self-breathing more heavily than usual, for I was much stirred. It always stirs a nephew to discover that a loved aunt does not know the difference between right and wrong, and there is a difference. At my school, Arnold Abney, M.A., used to rub it into the student body both Sundays and weekdays. But apparently nobody had told the aged relative about it, with the result that she could purloin people's porringers without a yip from her conscience. It shook me a bit, I confess. When Jeeves blew in, it cheered me to see the way his head stuck out at the back, for that's where the brain is. And what was needed here was a man with plenty of old grey matter who would put his points so that even a fermenting ant would have to be guided by him. Here's Jeeves, said the old ancestor. Tell him the facts, and I'll bet he says I've done the only possible thing and can carry along the lines I've sketched out. I might have risked a fiver on this at, say, twelve to eight, but it didn't seem fitting. But telling Jeeves the facts was a good idea, and I did so without delay, being careful to lay a proper foundation. Jeeves, I said. Yes, sir. He responded. Sorry to interrupt you again. Were you reading Spinoza? No, sir. I was writing a letter to my Uncle Charlie. Charlie Silversmith, I explained in an aside to the ancestor. Butler at Deverell Hill, one of the best. Thank you, sir. I know few men whom I esteem more highly than your Uncle Charlie. Well, we won't keep you long. It's just that another problem presenting certain points of interest has come up. In a recent conversation, I revealed to you the situation relating to Tuppy Glossop and L.P. Runcal. You recall? Yes, sir. Madam was hoping to extract a certain sum of money from Mr. Runcal on Mr. Glossop's behalf. Exactly. Well, it didn't come off. I'm sorry to hear that, sir. But not, I imagine, surprised. If I remember, you considered it a hundred-to-one shot. Approximately that, sir. Roncal being short of the bowels of compassion. Precisely, sir, a twenty-minute egg. Here the ancestor repeated her doubts with regard to L.P. Roncal's legitimacy, and would, I think, have developed the theme had I not shushed her 
with a raised hand. While she pleaded in vain, he sent her away with a flea in her ear. I wouldn't be surprised to learn he laughed her to scorn. The super-fatted old son of a bachelor! The ancestor interposed, and once more I shushed her down. Well, you know what happens when you do that sort of thing to a woman of spirit. Thoughts of reprisal fill her mind. And so, coming to the nub, she decided to purloin Runkle's Porringer. But I mustn't mislead you. She did this not as an act of vengeance, if you know what I mean, but in order to have a bargaining point when she renewed her applications. Brass up, she would have to say, when once more urging him to scare the moths out of his pocketbook. Or you won't get back your porringer. Do I make myself clear? Perfectly clear, sir. I find you very lucid. And first, I will have to be explained to you what a porringer is. And here I am handicapped by not having the foggiest notion myself, except that it's silver and old, and the sort of thing Uncle Tom has in his collection. And Carl was hoping to sell it to him. Could you supply any details? I asked the aged relative. She knitted her brows a bit, and said she couldn't do much in that direction. All I know is that it was made in the time of Charles II by some Dutchman or other. Then I think I know the porringer to which you allude, sir. Said Jeeves, his face lighting up as much as it ever lights up. He, for reasons of his own, preferring at all times to preserve the impassivity of a waxwork at Madame Tussauds. It was featured in Sotheby's catalogue, at which I happened to be glancing not long ago. Would it? He asked the ancestor. Be a silver gilt porringer, uncircular moulded foot, the lower part chased with acanthus foliage, with beaded scroll handles, the cover surmounted by a foliage on a rosette of swirling acanthus leaves, the stand of taza form on a circular detachable feet, with acanthus border joined to a multifoil plate, the pallid top with upcurved rim. He paused for a reply, but the ancestor did not speak immediately, her aspect that of one who has been run over by a municipal tram. Odd, really, because she must have been listening to that sort of thing from Uncle Tom for years. Finally, she mumbled that she wouldn't be surprised, or she wouldn't wonder, or something like that. Your guess is as good as mine, she said. I would fancy it must be the same, madam. You mentioned a workman of Dutch origin. Would the name be Hans Conrad Brechtel of The Hague? I couldn't tell you. I know it wasn't Smith or Jones or Robinson, and that's as far as I go. But what's all this in aid of? What does it matter if the stand is of taser form, or if the palin top has an upcurved rim? Exactly, I said, thoroughly concurring. Or if the credit for these Taza forms and palin tops has to be chalked up to Hans Conrad Bechtel of The Hague. The point, Jeeves, is not what particular porringer the ancestor has pinched, but how far she was justified in pinching any porringer at all when its owner was a guest of hers. I hold that it was a breach of hospitality and the thing must be returned. Am I right? Well, sir. Go on, Jeeves, urged the ancestor. Say I'm a crook who ought to be drummed out of the Market Snosbury Ladies' Social and Cultural Garden Club. Not at all, madam. Then what were you going to say when you hesitated? Merely that, in my opinion, no useful end will be served by retaining the object. I don't follow you. How about that bargaining point? It will, I fear, avail you little, madam. As I understand, Mr. Worcester, 
the sum you are hoping to obtain from Mr. Runcal amounts to a good many thousand pounds. Fifty, if not at least a hundred! Then I cannot envisage him complying with your demands. Mr. Runcal is a shrewd financier, and... Born out of wedlock! Very possibly you are correct, madam. Nonetheless, he is a man well-versed in weighing profit and loss. According to the Sotheby's catalogue, the price at which the object was sold to the auction sale was £9,000. He will scarcely disperse a hundred or even fifty thousand in order to recover it. Of course he won't, I said, as enchanted with his lucidity as he had been with mine. It was the sort of thinking you have to pay top-notchers at the bar a king's ransom for. He'll simply say easy come, easy go, and write it off as a business loss, possibly consulting his legal adviser as to whether he can deduct it from his income tax. Thank you, Jeeves. You straightened out everything in your customary, masterly manner. You're a... Uh, what, what, are you, what were you saying the other day about Daniel somebody? A Daniel come to judgment, sir. That was it. You were Daniel come to judgment. That is very kind of you to say, sir. Not at all. Well-deserved tribute. I shot a glance at the aged relative. It is notoriously difficult to change the trend of an aunt's mind when the mind is made up about this or that, but I could see it a G that G's had done it. I hadn't expected her to look pleased, she didn't, but it was evident that she had accepted what is sometimes called the inevitable. I would describe her as not having a word to say, had she not at this moment said one suitable enough for the hunting field, but on the strong side for mixed company. I registered it in my memory as something to say to Spode sometime, always provided it was on the telephone. I suppose you're right, Jeeves. She said heavy-hearted, though bearing up stoutly. It seemed a good idea at the time, but I agree with you that it isn't as watertight as I thought it. It's so often that way with one's golden dreams, the best laid plans of mice and men. Gangaft Agley, I said, helping her out. See the boat burns. I've often wondered why Scotsmen say gang. I asked you once, Jeeves, if you recall, and you said they had not confided in you. You were saying, Ancestor? I was about to say, or for that matter, Agley. I was about to say, or aft for orphan. I was about to say, said the relative, having thrown her wreck stout at me, fortunately with less accurate aim than the other time, that there's nothing to be done but for me to put the thing back in Runkhal's room where I took it from. Whence I took it would have been better, but it was not to comment on her prose style that I interposed. I was thinking that if she was allowed to do the putting back, she might possibly change her mind on the way to Runkhal's room and decide to stick with the loot after all. Jeeves's arguments had been convincing to the last drop, but you could never be sure that the effect of convincing arguments won't wear off, especially with aunts who don't know the difference between right and wrong. That it might be that she would take the view that if she pocketed the porringer and kept it among her souvenirs, she would at least be saving something from the wreck. Always difficult to know what to give Tom for his birthday, she might say to herself. This'll be just the thing. I'll do it, I said, unless you'd rather do it, Jeeves. No, thank you, sir. Only a minute of your time. No, thank you, sir. Then you may leave it to us, Jeeves. Much obliged for your Daniel come to judgmenting. A pleasure, sir. Give Uncle Charlie my love. I will indeed, sir. As the door closed behind Jeeves, 
I started to make my plans and dispositions, as I believe the word is, and I found the blood relation docile and helpful. Roncal's room, she told me, was the one known as the blue room, and the porringer would be inserted into the top left drawer of the chest of drawers, whence she had removed it. I asked if she was sure he was still in the hammock, and she said he must be because on her departure he was bound to have gone back to sleep again. Taking a line through the cat Augustus, I found this plausible. With these traumatic symplegia cases, waking is never more than a temporary thing. I have known Augustus to resume his slumbers within 15 seconds of having had a shopping bag containing tins of cat food fall on him. A stifled oath and he was off to dreamland once more. As I climbed the stairs, I was impressed by the fact that L.P. Rincal had been given the blue room. For in this house, it amounted to getting star billing. It was the biggest and most luxurious of the rooms allotted to the bachelors. I once suggested to the aged relative that I be put there, but all she said was, You, and the conversation turned to other topics. McCall, having got it in spite of the presence on the premises of a seventh earl, showed how determined the A.R. had been that no stone should be left unturned and no avenue unexplored in her efforts to soften him up. And it seemed ironical that all her carefully thought out plans should have gone all ugly. Just shows Burns knew what he was talking about. You can generally rely on these poets to hit the mark and entitle themselves to a cigar or a coconut according to choice. Old Sweats will remember, though later arrivals will have to be told, that this was not the first time I had gone on a secret mission to the Blue Room. That other visits, the Old Sweats will recall, had ended in a disaster and not knowing which way to look, for Mrs. Homer Cream, the well-known writer of suspense novels, had found me on the floor with a chain round my neck, and it had not been easy to explain. This was no doubt why, on the present occasion, I approached the door with emotions somewhat similar to those I had had in the old days when approaching that of Arnold Abney M.A. at the conclusion of morning prayers. A voice seemed to whisper in my ear that beyond that door there lurked something that wasn't going to do me a bit of good. The voice was perfectly right, and it got its facts correct first shot, when what met my eyes as I entered was L.P. Roncal asleep on the bed. And with my customary quickness I divined what must have happened. After being cornered there by the old ancestor, he must have come down to the conclusion that a hammock out in the middle of the lawn and access to it from all directions was no place for a man who wanted peace and seclusion, and that these were to be obtained only in his bedroom. Thither accordingly he had gone, and there he was. Voila tout, as one might say, if one had made a study of the French language. The sight of the sleeping beauty had, of course, given me a nasty start, causing my heart to collide rather violently with my front teeth. But it was only for a moment that I was unequal to what I have heard Jeeves call the intellectual pressure of the situation. It is pretty generally recognized in circles in which I move that Bertram Worcester, though he may be down, is never out. The betting being odds-on, given time to collect his thoughts and stop his head spinning, he will rise on stepping stones of his dead self to higher things, as the fellow said. And it was so now. I would have preferred, of course, to operate in a room wholly free from the presence of L.P. Roncal, but I realized that as long as he remained asleep, there was nothing to keep me from carrying on. All that was required was that my activities should be conducted in absolute silence. And thus it was that I was conducting them more like a spectre or a wraith than a chartered member of the drones club when the air was rent, as the expression is, 
by a sharp yowl such as you hear when a cougar or a snow leopard stubs its toe on a rock. And I became aware I had trod on the cat Augustus, who had continued to follow me, still, I suppose, under the mistaken impression that I had kippered herrings on my person and might at any moment start loosening up. Under normal circumstances, I would have hastened to make my apologies and endeavoured to tickle him behind the ear to apply balm to his wounded feelings. But at this moment, L.P. Runcall sat up and said, Wah, 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 and rubbed his eyes and gave me an unpleasant look with them and asked me what the devil I was doing in his room. It was not an easy question to answer. There had been nothing in our relations since we first swam into each other's ken to make it seem likely I had come to smooth his pillow or ask him if he would like a cooling drink. And I did not put forward these explanations. I was thinking how right the ancestor had been in predicting that, if aroused suddenly, he would wake up cross. His whole demeanour, in fact, was that of a man who didn't much like the human race as a whole, but was particularly allergic to Worcesters. Not even Spode could have made his distaste with them plainer. I decided to see what could be done with suavity. It had answered well in the case of Ginger, and there was no saying it might not help to ease the curtain situation. I'm sorry, I said, with an enchanting smile. I'm afraid I woke you. Yes, you did, and stop grinning at me like some half-witted ape. Righto, I said. I removed the enchanting smile. It came off quite easily. I don't wonder you're annoyed, but I'm more to be pitied than censured. I inadvertently trod on the cat. A look of alarm spread over his face. It had a long way to go, but it spread all right. Hat? He quavered, and I could see he feared for the well-being of his Panama with a pink ribbon. I lost no time in reassuring him. No, no, not hat, cat. What cat? Oh, you haven't met. Augustus is his name, though for purposes of conversation this is usually shortened to Gus. He and I have been buddies here since he was a kitten. He must have been following me when I came in here. There was an unfortunate way of putting things, for it brought him right back to the original theme. And why the devil did you come in here? A lesser man than Bertram Worcester would have been nonplussed, and I don't mind admitting that I was too, for about a couple of ticks. But as I stood, shuffling the feet and twiddling the fingers, I caught sight of that camera of his standing on an adjacent table and I got one of those inspirations you get occasionally. Shakespeare and Burns and even Oliver Wendell Holmes probably used to have them all the time, but self not so often. In fact, this was the first that had come my way in some weeks. Ah, my Aunt Dahlia sent me to ask you if you would come and take a few photos of her and the house and all that sort of thing, so that she'll have them to look at in the long winter evenings. You know how long the winter evenings get nowadays. The moment I had said it, I found myself speculating as to whether the inspiration had been as hot as I supposed. I mean, this man had just had a conference with the old ancestor, which, unlike those between ministers of state, had not been conducted in an atmosphere of the utmost cordiality, and he might be thinking it odd that so soon after its conclusion she should be wanting him to take photos of her. But all was well. No doubt he looked on her request as what is known as an olive branch. Anyway, he was all animation and eagerness to cooperate. I'll be right down, he said. Tell her I'll be right down. Having hidden the porringer in my room and locked the door, I went back to the aged relative and found her with Jeeves. She expressed relief at seeing me. Oh, there you are, my beautiful bounding Bertie. 
Thank goodness you didn't go to Runcal's room. Jeeves tells me that Seppings met Runcal on the stairs, and he asked him to bring him a cup of tea in half an hour. He said he was going to lie down. You might have run right into him. I laughed one of those hollow, mirthless ones. Jeeves speaks too late, old ancestor. I did run into him. You mean he was there? With his hair in a braid. What did you do? I told him you had asked me to ask him to come down and take photographs. Quick thinking. I always think like lightning. Did he swallow it? He appeared to. He said he'd be right down. Well, I'm damned if I'm going to smile. Whether I would have pleaded with her to modify this stern resolve and at least show a portion of her front teeth when McCall pressed the button, I cannot say, for as she spoke, my thoughts were diverted. A sudden query presented itself. What, I asked myself, was keeping L.P. Runcall? He said he'd be right down. But quite a time had elapsed and no sign of him. I was toying with the idea that on a warm afternoon like this, a man of his build might have had a fit of some kind. When there came from the stairs the sound of clumping feet, and he was with us. But a very different L.P. Runcall from the man who had told me he'd be right down. Then he'd been all sunny and beaming. The amateur photographer, who was not only going to make a pest of himself by taking photographs, but had actually been asked to make a pest of himself in this manner, which seldom happens to amateur photographers. Now he was cold and hard like a picnic egg, and he couldn't have looked at me with more loathing if I really had trod on his Panama hat. Madame Travers. His voice had rung out with the clarion note of a costermonger, seeking to draw the attention of the purchasing public to his blood oranges and Brussels sprouts. I saw the ancestor stiffen, and I knew she was about to go into her grand dame act. This relative, though an ordinary sex, so genial and matey, can on occasion turn in a flash into a carbon copy of a duchess of the old school, reducing an underling to a spot of grease. And what's so remarkable is that she doesn't have to use a lorgnette. Just does it all with the power of the human eye. I think girls in her day used to learn the trick at their finishing schools. Will you kindly not bellow at me, Mr. Runcall? I'm not deaf. What is it? The aristocratic ice in her tone sent a cold shiver down my spine, but an L.P. Runcall she had picked a tough customer to try to freeze. He apologized for having bellowed, but briefly and with no real contrition. He then proceeded to deal with her query as to what it was, and with a powerful effort forced himself to speak quite quietly, not exactly like cooing pigeons, but quietly. I wonder if you remember, Madame Travers, a silver Polinger I showed you on my arrival here. I do. Very valuable. So you told me. I kept it in the top left-hand drawer of the chest of drawers in my bedroom. It did not occur to me that there was any necessity to hide it. I took the honesty of everyone under your roof for granted. Naturally. Even when I found that Monsieur Wooster was one of my fellow guests, I took no precautions. It was a fatal blunder. He has just stolen it. I suppose it's pretty much of a strain to keep up that grand dame stuff for any length of time, involving, as it does, rigidity of the facial muscles and the spinal column. For at these words, the ancestor called it a day and reverted to the corn and pitchliness of her youth. Don't be a damned fool, Runcall! You're talking rot. Bertie would never dream of doing such a thing, would you, Bertie? 
Not in a million years. The man's an ass. One might almost say a silly ass. Comes of sleeping all the time. I believe that's the trouble. Addles the brain. Must I imagine. It's the same thing with Gus the cat. I love Gus like a brother, but after years of non-stop sleep, he's got about as much genuine intelligence as a cabinet minister. I hope Runcall has not annoyed you with his preposterous allegations. No, no, old ancestor, I'm not angry. Just terribly, terribly hurt. You'd have thought all this would have rendered Runcall a spent force and a mere shell of his former self, but his eyes were not dimmed, nor his natural force abated. Turning to the door, he paused there to add a few words. I disagree with you, Madame Travers, in the view you take of your nephew's honesty. I prefer to be guided by Lord Seacup, who assures me that Monsieur Wooster invariably steals anything that is not fairly fastened to the floor. It is only by the merest chance Lord Seacup tells me that at a first meeting he did not make off with an umbrella belonging to Sir Watkin Bassett, and from there... He has, as one might put it, gone from strength to strength. Umbrellas, cow creamers, umber statuettes, cameras, they're all greased to his meal. I was unfortunately asleep when he crept into my room, and he had plenty of time before I awoke to do what he came to do. It was only some minutes after he had slunk out, it occurred to me to look in the top left-hand drawer of my chest of drawers. My suspicions were confirmed. The drawer was empty. He had got away with the swag. But I am a man of action. I have sent your butler to the police station to bring a constable to search Wooster's room. I, until he arrives, prefer to stand outside making sure he does not go in and tamper with the evidence. Having said such in the most unpleasant of vocal deliveries, L.P. Rincall became conspicuous by his absence and the ancestor spoke with considerable eloquence on the subject of fat slobs of dubious parentage who had the immortal crust to send her butler on errands. I, too, was exercised by the concluding portion of the remarks. I don't like that, I said, addressing Jeeves, who during the recent proceedings had been standing in the background giving a lifelike impersonation of somebody who wasn't there. Sir, if the fuzz search my room, I'm sunk. Have no anxiety, sir. A police officer is not permitted to enter private property without authority, nor do the regulations allow him to ask the owner of such property for permission to enter. You're sure of that? Yes, sir. Well, there was a crumb of comfort, but it would be deceiving my public if I said that Bertram Worcester was his usual nonchalant self. Too many things had been happening one on top of the other for him to be the carefree boulevardier one likes to see. If I hoped to clarify the various situations which were giving me the pip and erase the dark circles already beginning to form beneath my eyes, it would, I saw, be necessary for me to marshal my thoughts. Jeeves, I said, leading him from the room. I must marshal my thoughts. Certainly, sir, if you wish. And I can't possibly do it here with crises turning handsprings on every side. Can you think of a good excuse for me to pop up to London for the night? A few hours alone in the peaceful surroundings of the apartment are what I need. I need to concentrate. Concentrate. But do you require an excuse, sir? It's better to have one. Aunt Dahlia is on a sticky wicket and would be hurt if I deserted her now, unless I had some good reason. I can't let her down. The sentiment does you credit, sir. Thank you, Jeeves. Can you think of anything? 
You have been summoned for jury duty, sir. Did they let you have a longish notice for that? Yes, sir, but when the post arrived containing the letter from the authorities, I forgot to give it to you, and only delivered it a moment ago. Fortunately, it was not too late. Would you be intending to leave immediately, sir? If not sooner, I'll borrow Ginger's car. You will miss the debate, sir. The what? The debate between Mr. Winship and his opponent. It takes place tomorrow night. What time? It's scheduled for a quarter to seven. How long will that take? Perhaps an hour, sir. Then expect me back at about 7.30. The great thing in life, Jeeves, if we wish to be happy and prosperous, is to miss as many political debates as possible. You wouldn't care to come with me, would you? No, thank you, sir. I am particularly anxious to hear Mr. Winship's speech. He'll probably only say, er, I reposted rather cleverly. 